It's uh, time now for the General Knowledge Podcast bonus content show purely for our wonderful members who are supporting the work we're doing here at Real News Australia and the General Knowledge Podcast. Thanks for for all the help that you guys do. Welcome to uh, some of the new members there. Welcome to uh, Rebecca, who's um, jumped on board for May. Thanks for getting on board. Uh, Andy's with me tonight, uh, and we'll introduce our guest shortly. But Andy, thanks for coming on for this particular one, mate. I hope you're uh, hope you're excited. Don't give away too much before I do the intro. But thanks for getting on board. <laughs> I have a habit of doing that, don't I? <laughs> Unintentionally, so I can't blame you, mate. It's exciting stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I do, I do like the subject that we're about to um, jump into. So, mm. um, I mean, we can so give yeah, a little bit away, everyone. We can give a little bit away because we did allude to it in our um, last uh, main podcast show. I, I plugged it a couple of times to kind of whet people's appetite that we would have John back on the show. So uh, it's good. So that's all yes, right. Yes. But we'll bring him in very shortly. I have prepared a bit of an introduction for this particular episode. So, um, yeah. So as before we um, get into it, though, if you do have any questions... Uh, or you, you sort of want to interrupt our, our guest as he's going through. He's got a whole bunch of information to go through. Feel free. He, he, um, John's all good at um, if you want to just in, interrupt at all. Andy, with any questions or anything, he's he's more than happy, happy sure. to have you interrupt and stuff, um, which I'm sure I will. I've always got plenty of questions. Uh, all right, here we go, folks. In the early hours of the morning on the 15th of April, 1912, the RMS Titanic was on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City. But four days into her journey, the giant ocean liner collided with an iceberg around 11.40pm and sank two hours and 40 minutes later, taking a suspected 1,500 or more souls with her to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. Or so we've been led to believe. Was an iceberg actually responsible for the ship's demise? Did the Titanic's operator, White Star Line, have anything to do with it? Was the sinking of the Titanic actually orchestrated as an elaborate assassination plot to take out rival banking families? 
Has Hollywood played a part in the deception to control how history is portrayed? Was there enough room on the floating door to save both Rose and Jack? <laughs> to, to tackle these questions, we've enlisted the expertise of researcher and author John Hamer. John, welcome back to the General Knowledge Podcast, mate. Hi, thanks very much. It's great to be back. Your worries, mate. And of course, that last one I just threw in there for a bit of a laugh. <laughs> I'm sure everyone who's yeah. listened to this is going to know the movie Titanic, of course, and uh, all yeah. the um, predictive and all the programming as well that's in that one. And uh, not predictive programming, but all the programming that is uh, in that yeah. film to make us believe the, uh, I guess, the official narrative um, with, of course, a bit of fluff thrown into it as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's uh, it's a great story, isn't it? The uh, Titanic film. I mean, it's absolute nonsense from start to finish. But <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great entertainment, I suppose, if you like that kind of thing. But you know, we're here tonight or today, whenever it, this is broadcast. I'm not sure. Yeah, so, today for you, yeah. tonight for us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, bit of a time gap there, isn't there? But uh, yeah, we're, we're here to talk about the real story, not not the fictitious crap that, that gets thrust on us through the media and uh, from every source available. Mm. Um, now, so yeah, I think. Paul, I was going to say, just before we, we dive right into it, which and I'll get you to sort of cover it from sort of start to finish with as, as much detail as you want. We've we've got a, we've got yeah. a fair bit of time, I guess. But um, yeah, you've you've researched this. You've I know on your website falsificationofhistory.co.uk, you've got um, a a fiction story on this one, which I believe is Titanic's Last Secret. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's the novel that I wrote. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just a little bit of background about that. I won't, I won't take too long on it. Yeah, you're right. Kind of digress a bit. But yeah, I, I wrote a novel about it, but it, the novel was based on my book, my non-fiction book, RMS Olympic, which is the which is the Titanic story. Um, but I actually was invited over to Hollywood. Uh, someone saw my YouTube uh, presentation on, on it, which went viral. It, it kind of went up to about 600,000 views in, a, in the space mm. of a couple of months. Nice. And uh, I was contacted by a, di a film director from Hollywood, not a very famous one, but she invited me over there on the basis of, you know, trying to drum up some funding to make a film of it. Uh, so I went over there for a couple of weeks, but I mean, the top and bottom of it was, we didn't get anywhere and nobody was really interested for obvious reasons or for reasons that will become apparent as we, as we continue with this, uh, with this podcast. Awesome. Um, but yeah, yeah. But um, the reason that I wrote a novel was because one of the producers that we saw said we can't make a film unless there is a novel to back it up. So that was the so I went away and I wrote the novel in about five months, and we went back to the guy and said, "Okay, here's the novel," and he said, "Okay, great, I'm not interested anyway now." No. <laughs> so that was that. But at least at least I got a book out of it, if nothing else. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I hope the book so, that book has at least done something for you anyway, and has got a few sales exactly. for you. But um, and also, I hope it's kind of wet people's appetite for, I guess, the real research which you've done, which is, of course, that book RMS Olympic. So, uh, I do right. encourage the listeners to, and I'll put links in the show notes as well. So please head over to falsificationofhistory.co.uk and you can uh, forward slash books. You can have a look at all the books available there as well, and uh, feel free to support the wonderful work that John's doing and pick up a copy. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sure by the end of this, you you guys will be very enthralled as to. What really happened on that uh, on that fateful? Well, I guess everything leading up to it too, to to that fateful yeah. night. Um, yeah, mate, I'll, I'll, I'll hand the floor over to you, buddy. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for the plug. That's great. But can I also suggest that rather than just go to my website, which they're obviously welcome to do, 
Um, it's a little bit out of date as far as the books go. So, but I, all my books are available on Amazon. Okay. If you go to Amazon, is it Amazon.au where you are? Uh, dot com.au. Uh, yeah, dot com.au. Okay. Um, and just key in my name, John Hamer, H-A-M-E-R, and all my books will be on there. Awesome. Fantastic, mate. Yeah. Uh, oh, so, I, might, I might do that in, instead, actually. Well, oh, I'll do that as well. I'll put a link to the your um, Amazon account, yeah. so to speak, so people can jump on there and, and yeah, grab, grab some of your work, mate. No worries. Thanks. Um, yeah, so that's plugs over now. <laughs> onto the onto the meat of the stuff now. Actually, just sorry, <laughs> so, one more thing. Um, as we go okay. along, feel free if you've got any visuals, um, you know, like pictures, um, texts, or anything you want that helps portray this story. I'd like to feel free to drop it in our Skype chat as we're going along, or at the end, or whatever. If you want to give me a whole bunch of them, and I can include those for the folks um, uh, listening as well. That way, they can. Sort of, you know, if there's any visual, they can at least look along while they're while while you're talking about it. Um, if you, so if you've I, got, I, any... yeah. To be honest, I don't have anything prepared of that nature, but I could always send you them at the end. That yeah, is, that's is that any use? That's fine. Yeah, yeah. If you, even if it's just yeah. a few things here and there, that'd be good for the, for the folks listening. I'm sure they'll love it. Okay, okay. Well, um, yeah, it's all buried buried away in uh, in the files of my laptop, so I'd have to kind of, um, <laughs> you know, break off and. Do it so. All right. Well, if it's if it's going to be too much too much trouble, but unless there's anything really crucial where you can go here, you know, like by looking at this image, you'll see this, or you know, if it's something like yeah. that, then it would really help. But uh, I mean, unless there's another, yeah. is there a place on on your website maybe where you've put some of that up, or is there another source? No. no? Okay. No. Uh, all the pictures I've got. I mean, I've got dozens of pictures, but it would mean my kind of sifting through all my files and sorting out the relevant ones, and I, I don't have to... It are, would, they, um, are they in the, in the book by any chance? Sorry? Are they in Are they in the book RMS Olympic by any chance? Any they are. They're all in RMS oh, Olympic. Oh, well, yeah. forget about it. That's right. We'll just tell folks to get your book. Absolutely. It's <laughs> another excuse to grab the copy of it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, good stuff. All right, mate. The floor is yours, mate. Take us take us through this, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll throw a yeah. question at you here and there if, we, if something comes up. Yeah, but... Absolutely, by all means, both of you just interrupt any time and, uh, you know, if, if anything needs clarifying or you're curious about something that I've not covered or whatever, yeah, just, just feel free to interrupt any time. Thanks, John. Okay, so probably best to start with a little bit of background to my research. I mean, I researched this, this story for three years, between the years of 2010 and 2013, so, you know, I was doing this pretty much full time. I was obviously doing other bits of things as well, but... This, this kind of was my main focus for during those three years. And the places that I looked, I looked at the uh, transcripts of the inquiries. Uh, the, there were two inquiries, the US inquiry, which came first, and the British inquiry, which came second. So I, I studied those transcripts in depth, and they were very, very revealing. Uh, I looked at Harland and Wolfe public records. Harland and Wolfe was a shipyard in Belfast, Ireland, where the, where the ship was built. I looked at various other archives and libraries <clears throat> through contemporary newspaper reports in libraries, which are available on microfiche. Uh, obviously, the internet is a good source. I spoke to quite a few people who've been obliquely involved in it. For example, I spoke to uh, 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 Bertie Lightoller, who was second officer, who was the most senior surviving officer. I spoke to his nephew. And he had some interesting tidbits to tell me about various different things that didn't quite follow the official narrative. Mm. And I also looked at the full Marconi wireless transcripts. Uh, they're, only, they're not available on the internet. They're only available in the Bodleian Library in Oxford in England. Now, um, 
they were very revealing also. The Marconi was the, for those who didn't know, don't know, at that time, the transatlantic crossings, the, the, the wireless operators, obviously wireless was in its infancy in those days, uh, but the, the wireless operators weren't actually employed by the shipping lines, they were actually employed by the Marconi company. So Marconi company kept a record of every wireless uh, conversation from every ship throughout the time, the, throughout that time period. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of research gone into it. And uh, it, as I say, it's been very revealing. So here we go. First of all, I think I would like to say that there are two kind of strands to this story. And I, might, I may swap about a little bit. So please excuse me if, if, uh, if I do that. Um, but I'll try not to make it too confusing. But it starts, the story starts in 1908 with a gentleman by the name of J.P. Morgan, who many of you will have heard of, and he was the head of a huge uh, conglomerate of the same name, J.P. Morgan Company. But he was also the ultimate owner of the White Star shipping line to which Titanic belonged. And in 1908, he decided to build three luxury liners with the mandate of becoming the most luxurious uh, shipping line in the world. And these ships were going to be in order, the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. So the plan was that three ships, almost, but not quite identical, were going to be built. So he commissioned a Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast to commence construction in that same year, 1908. Now, this required a massive amount of investment, and this was financed by JP himself, and it was a huge gamble. This plan depended on absolutely everything going right, and this is a really crucial part, part of the story. But, you know, as we'll see as the story develops, the whole enterprise was beset with problems uh, right from the off, and obviously ultimately ending in tragedy. Now, the ship RMS Olympic, <coughs> excuse me, was the first of the three sister ships to be built, and this was launched in 1911. But unfortunately for Morgan and the White Star Line, she had several serious accidents, all in the first few months of her life. Four, in fact. Okay, so this was even before Titanic was launched. Titanic was under construction at this point in time, but we're just concentrating on RMS Olympic for the moment now which was an all, uh, almost identical twin sister, as I say. So the first accident that Olympic had, it wasn't too bad in terms of damage to the ship itself, but she actually destroyed a tug in New York Harbor on her maiden voyage. And White Star Line was sued. Fortunately, no deaths occurred, no damage, no overt damage to RMS Olympic, but the tug was absolutely destroyed. Yeah, so this is just kind of setting the scene for the kind of incidents that, that, that beset it in, in its early days. Mm -hmm. Then a few weeks later, on on another voyage, it ran over a sunken wreck uh, whilst exiting New York Harbour, which caused severe damage to her propellers, and she had to return back across the Atlantic at about half speed. But suffer, as a result of that, suffered really bad vibrational damage due to the imbalance caused by the propeller damage. Because only one propeller was working, the other one wasn't working correctly. Um, and it, as a result, there was massive vibration throughout the ship. And two propellers had to be replaced. Now, that, yeah, okay. So that, that was the second accident. The third one, again, um, 
exit in New York Harbor. Seems to have a lot of problems wow, in New yeah. York. Wow, yeah, it's the third one. <laughs> yes, this is this is only a few weeks later again. Um, she hit a sandbank and ran aground and, and threw a propeller this time. So the propeller actually was torn off. And uh, this had to be replaced, of course. Um, and again, more vibrational damage on the way back. Because the only place where you could fit the propeller was in the dry dock at uh, Highlander Wolf in Belfast. Now, because she was built there, and don't forget she was the biggest ship in the world at this point in time, this was the only dry dock in the world that was big enough to take her. So they couldn't make repairs in New York. They had to somehow get her back across the Atlantic. Yeah, so again, like limp home sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it took a couple of weeks to get back where it usually takes about, you know, under a week. And um, <clears throat> now having used both spares already a few weeks earlier, they had to borrow one from the Titanic, which was still under construction at this time. Now, this is a significant point, And we'll return to this later in the story. But bear it in mind. And uh, if you wouldn't mind making a note, mate, and reminding me to return to this when we get near the end, yep. when we talk about the aftermath, I would appreciate it because, you know, trying to concentrate on what I'm saying, I might forget. Yeah, so yep. if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Right. And then now number four, this was the biggie, right? In September 1911, so we're only talking, even at this point, we're only talking like three months after she was launched, Olympic was involved in a massive high-speed collision with a British Navy cruiser which is called HMS Hawk, and which has been referred to ever since as, as the Hawk incident. This was as she was leaving Southampton Water on the south coast of England and just ab about to turn westward around the Isle of Wight. A ship, the, sh the Navy cruiser, came up on her starboard side, her right side, hit her amidships, and you know con inflicted considerable damage. Now, this... this battle cruiser, it had a, a huge battering ram on the front, so you can imagine the damage that was done. In fact, I've got pictures of the damage in RMS Olympic, and I will send them to you afterwards if, if that's any use. But um, it, the damage was, was incredible. I mean, it, it was absolutely uh, really, really bad. Mm. Okay. So she went back to Southampton, which was only kind of a few miles up the, uh, up the estuary, to be patched up so that she could get back to Belfast, back to the... Uh, Thompson Graving Dock, which was the only dry dock in the world, which was large enough to take her. So she went back to Southampton for initial assessment and patching up. Even the patch up took two weeks to enable her to get back to Belfast. Um, but once they got her back in dry dock in Belfast, it was realised that she was in far worse shape than the original than was originally thought. So she was out of action for quite a few months, which obviously hit Morgan very hard in his pocket. Mm. He'd had invested a lot of money, and of course she wasn't now paying away, playing a trade across the Atlantic. She was, um, you know, she was uh, in in the dry dock, uh, not earning uh, revenues. Uh, but worse still, for Morgan and his plans. Any ship that has a, any Royal Navy ship that's involved in an accident has to be subjected to a, a, an official Royal Navy inquiry. Okay, and, that, and quite, as you would predict, the inquiry found Olympic's crew and therefore White Star Line culpable, guilty. So White Star was not only losing massive amounts of revenue, uh, which was needed to keep the company afloat, but she was now liable for all the insurance payout. So she was liable for many millions of pounds worth of expenses for repairs to both ships, plus significant loss of revenues 
World Olympic without an action, which is, as I said, which is a, as I said before. And this was causing Morgan, obviously, severe financial issues. Mm. Now, excuse me a second. Hmm. Just needed a drink. I was drying up there. You're right. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, amongst many other relatively minor issues, though, the major problem was that Olympic's keel was found to be bent and distorted out of shape. And anyone who is a seafaring person knows that a bent keel is basically a wreck. Okay, the, the repairs were going to cost more than to build a new ship from scratch because she would have had to be totally dismantled to replace the keel. So they were in a, they were in a bit of a quandary. Uh, White Star now realised that Olympic was damaged beyond economic repair, and even more significantly, that she was now uninsurable. Therefore, she was an insurance write-off, and White Star Line had no option but to declare her officially as a wreck. Now, this is a very significant point. She was actually declared a wreck. It actually did happen. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, so now, at this point in time, the bankruptcy of White Star Line and Harland and & Wolf as well, because Harland & Wolf built ships almost exclusively for White Star Line, this, the bank, bankruptcy was definitely on the cards. So it's my belief that at this point, Morgan and his co-conspirators then hatched a plan to kill two birds with one stone, you know, if you like. A, to solve the White Star financial problems uh, and the little quandary they were faced with, and also to remove opposition to the founding of the Federal Reserve Bank in one simple move. Now, this is what I was referring to earlier on about the second strand in the story, and I'll come back to the, that in a little while, but let's concentrate on the, on the Olympic situation first, uh, first of all. Mm -hmm. okay. So... What they did, they patched up the wrecked Olympic as best they could and braced the twisted keel with, with metal uh, steel struts. And that's significant as well because when Robert Ballard, who allegedly discovered the Titanic, he didn't actually, but that's another story altogether. But let's just assume that he did. But when he said that he discovered the Titanic wreck site, he was very puzzled to find that the struts which of course, these struts, which of course didn't appear on the original construction blueprints. Now, don't forget this is RMS Olympic that we're talking about, and he's examining, examining Titanic, yeah. allegedly, yeah. at the bottom of the sea. So I think... Red flags everywhere there. Going. Yeah, so in my view, okay, and there is, there's no absolute proof, but this is... You know, it, it is conjecture, but it's backed up by masses and masses of uh, circumstantial evidence. Okay. Though, so this, the scene was set now for a, what I believe was a remarkably elaborate scam, and that was the switching of the identities of the two ships. They almost completed Titanic, and the almost wrecked Olympic. Now, this fact is corroborated by many Belfast ship workers' families who've had the past story passed down to them through their families down the generations. I actually interviewed three family members, went over to Belfast, interviewed three family members. None of them knew each other. They were separate meetings, and uh, they all told me exactly the same story, and that was that their great-grandfather, or grandfather in some cases, who worked in the dockyard at that time, had told them that they were threatened 
threatened with violence and with never working again, not just for Harland and Wolf, but never working again ever, which in those days, you know, before Social Security existed, that was a death sentence for yeah, them and their family. that's right. So they were threatened that they must not say anything at all outside the dockyard gates. Obviously they did, they told the families, but they were under strict orders of silence. So that was very significant. Okay. So I don't know if you guys have got any questions at this point or whether you just want me to plow on. Yeah, no, plow on for now. I'm good. Andy, are you right? You're on mute. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm listening. Anything to throw at him so far? Uh, no, 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 no. We're just getting started. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, cool. Yeah, no, right. it's, it's good. It's building it's nicely. I'm liking it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is the uh, this is the kind of gist of it. But let's let's see how they actually carried this scam out, shall we? <clears throat> okay. So after Olympics accident with Hawk, she spent many many weeks in the shipyard at Belfast undergoing these these repairs, and she was actually sat inside sat side by side Titanic in the dock at this time. So they actually worked on both ships, making changes to them piecemeal. Um, the main differences between the two ships, which weren't great, there were some minor differences, but the main differences were being eradicated and making them as identical as possible. Although it wasn't 100% practical and viable to do that, uh, which actually makes... Uh, which, which actually makes us understand how the plot has been discovered through meticulous research, you know, through the various photographs and, and, kind, and different kinds of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There's lots of photographs showing them in various stages of transition. You know, some are dated, some are not dated. Um, the the, the pro-Titanic buffs um, always say that the photos prove that no switch happened, but I actually believe the contrary. I think the photos absolutely prove that the switch was made, but there you go. It's, um, it's like everything else, isn't it? The ones who defend the official position always believe that they have proof on their side. But, uh, you know, I beg to differ yeah. in this case. <laughs> okay, so then on one final weekend, the last changes were made uh, and they actually hired a, uh, a trusted crew of about 15 men who were paid a hundred pounds each, but were also threatened with loss of livelihood, etc. In, in the event of them coming clean to the media or whatever, not that the media would have listened, but yeah. So it was carried out by this small crew of insiders. They were paid a hundred pounds, which doesn't sound an awful lot of money. But oh, it's a fortune back money. then. Yeah, shit, Jesus, yeah, like yeah. a year, it was a year, it was a year salary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and all, all they had to change at this point were the lifeboats, which had the, um, uh, the names of the ships on them, the menus, which also had the names of the ships on, the letterheads, and, of course, the nameplates on the ships. Now, this was accomplished in one weekend. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. So, so then, uh, Olympics maiden voyage had taken place on, in June 1911, amidst no fanfare whatsoever, and, but significantly, and we'll come on to this in a bit more detail later, uh, Titanic's launch, bearing in mind that she was the second in line, second off the production line, not the first, Titanic's launch was totally different. Okay, the, the, the fuss and the fanfare made over Titanic was incredible. You know, I've looked at the contemporary newspaper reports for the launch of Olympic, 
and the same for Titanic, uh, and the, the the difference is staggering. Yeah, okay, there's a reason for that, though. You're you're building. There to is this. a reason. Yeah. For that. Okay. Cool. And I'll, and I'll come on to that later, yeah. but it's just worth bearing that in mind at this point in time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, to be fair, there are many conflicting photographs of the two in various stages of both official and unofficial changes, because a lot of the changes that were made were not actually recorded in the uh, Harland and Wolf uh, records. So, I mean, even so-called Titanic experts, which aren't really Titanic experts at all, they just follow the official line, they, even they struggle to separate the two ships. Um, you know, but and as I say, you know, if surreptitious changes were being made alongside official ones, then the conclusion has to be that really the photos prove nothing at all. Mm. Yeah. So, on Wednesday, the tenth of April, nineteen twelve, Titanic left Southampton on its maiden voyage for New York amidst huge celebrations, calling at Cherbourg, France, and Queenstown in Ireland with 2,200 passengers and crew on board. Now, most people assume that uh, Titanic was full on its maiden voyage. Well, actually, it was barely half full. Um, you know, the, and there's a reason for this, too. Okay. Um, so, but just, just backtracking slightly from there, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit. All ships that um, uh, have... I'll have to be granted a certificate of seaworthiness, okay, for obvious reasons. Safety yeah, for sure. Yeah. Health, safety, safety. Okay, and and to achieve that, they have to undergo a trial, a sea trial on the open seas, uh, which is quite a comprehensive thing. There's a there's a, a guy from the British Board of Trade, as it was then, um, who was who supervised that and oversaw it, and he was the guy who was responsible for for giving it a certificate of seaworthiness. Um, so. Uh, interestingly, Titanic sea trials lasted two hours and just involved a very short trip down the uh, the River Lagan into uh, Belfast Lock, which is not uh, the, the open sea at all. It's a, it's a calm inland water, and uh, you know there were no significant uh, tests done whatsoever. Um, you know the the, the the kind of things that had to be performed were turning circles, stopping distances, just kind of, I suppose, you know, similar to a driving test, if you like. Yeah, yeah, the basic but, sort of stuff you would expect yeah. a, a liner yeah. to do in the ocean and coming to port and stuff, yeah. Exactly, exactly that. But she didn't do any of that. And, I mean, this is not just my conjecture. This is not just me making That's it. That's on so the official record. Yeah, this is recorded. You know, uh, Olympics sea trials were... You know, she spent a whole day out on the Irish Sea. Uh, I mean, the Irish Sea is not exactly the open ocean as such, but I mean, it, you know, it, it, it can get very stormy on there. It's, you know, it's 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 uh, it's a much better test than just uh, up and down a river into yeah. a lock. Basically. I'm surprised <laughs> it can actually fit in a river. Like the surely the, well, the displacement the of this thing was huge. Yeah, it's a large estuary, um, the the River Lagan, which which enters the Irish Sea. It is oh, okay. it is pretty big. Belfast Lock itself is is a is a pretty big body of water, so it's not it's not just like uh, a little pond around the corner. Yeah, okay, thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But but nevertheless, it's not the open sea. That, that that's 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 the point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, interestingly, the transit crew. These were the guys who were responsible for taking the liner from Belfast 
uh, down to Southampton to begin its maiden voyage, uh, none of those crew signed on for the actual voyage. You know, this is hundreds of people we're talking about, not just one or two. This is hundreds of guys, you know, uh, stokers and, you know, engineers. So they they didn't know they were going on this trip, is that what you're saying? No, I mean, they did. They were offered the chance to sign on for the maiden voyage, but en masse, they decided not to do it. Now, at that point in time, there'd been a coal strike in the UK that had lasted six weeks. So all seamen were out of work. There were no ships crossing the Atlantic. Uh, passengers were clamouring for, uh, for berths on ships. Very, very few were sailing because there was no coal available. For example, um, you know, a huge liner like Titanic, it took 6,000 tonnes of coal to cross the Atlantic. Far out. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know... So the fact that they didn't sign on to me is very significant. The people were out of work, people were going hungry, because I said there was no sort of social security, they were doing bits of jobs here and there, whatever they could. But the, all the um, all the seamen in uh, in the UK, well, worldwide probably, were only paid for the voyages that they went on. They weren't paid a kind of a, a retainer if they weren't working. If they weren't actually on board a ship, they weren't paid. They're basically unemployed so, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So these guys knew something, is the point that I'm making. None of them signed on apart from two, okay? Out of the hundreds of the transit crew, just to repeat for the sake of, uh, you know, emphasizing the point, out of those hundreds of guys, only two signed on for the maiden voyage. Now, that begs the question, what on earth did they know? You know, there were all sorts of rules laying about, you know, people knew what was going on. And these guys never signed on. And significantly, the two that did sign on, they but there was two stops. You know, Titanic left Southampton, stopped at Cherbourg in France, and then at Queenstown in Ireland. Both those guys jumped ship at Queenstown. So not a single one of the transit crew crossed the Atlantic. Not a single one of the transit <laughs> crew was on board yeah. when she went. Back. Yeah, right. they knew what was going on. <laughs> they knew there was uh, something going on. Eh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, as I say, there'd been a coal strike going on for six weeks. Uh, passengers were desperate for berths on the ships, you know, people trying to get across there, across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Now, five days earlier than uh, Titanic's departure, a ship called the Californian had departed for New York from London in the midst of this nationwide coal strike. Now, and, and coal shortage, of course, were now... now Californian was part of the Red Star Line, which was a sister company to the White Star Line, and this was also owned by J.P. Morgan. So, again, bear this in mind, this is significant. Now, interestingly, Californian departed London with no passengers, okay, in the midst of a coal strike where where people were clamoring for passengers, passengers across the Atlantic, no passengers, despite this huge huge demand that was going on, and no cargo at all, right? Except for, and get this, the only cargo that Californian carried was 3,000 woolen sweaters and 3,000 woolen blankets. 
Oh, now, now, would the detractors say that that's possibly you know stocking up for perhaps you know maybe some wartime stuff that they knew was coming or? Well, maybe, but it's a bit tenuous, that isn't it? <laughs> it's a good number. It fits the amount of uh, you know passengers yeah. put that would possibly need them on one of these liners. I mean, just I'm just trying yeah. to come up with something as to say that what it yeah, could have possibly been. But yeah, you're right. You're right. You're leading in the right direction. There. It's, it is very sus for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as this develops, you'll I think you might kind of um, you know forget that idea. Yeah. Let, let's carry. <laughs> okay. So, as I mentioned before, Titanic sailed, when, when Titanic sailed, she was only half full when there was a huge demand for, for places. Um, and, and even first-class passengers who were hoping to transfer to Titanic were only offered second-class cabins. Now, any self-respecting first-class passenger in, in those days would not, never deign to travel second-class. And, and I think White Star Line knew this. And I believe that this was an attempt to keep numbers manageable. Mm. Yeah, for the for the rescue attempt that was to come. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, smart way yeah. to do it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, interestingly, uh, J.P. Morgan was due to sail on the ship, and he cancelled at the very last minute. As well as fifty of his friends and colleagues, they also cancelled their passages at the last minute. Um. Okay, so anyway, back to the Californian. Right, the Californian, as I said, left England five days before Titanic, uh, and this and that's significant because because she, uh, top speed was only half the uh, speed of Titanic. It took t- Titanic five days to reach the ice field where she sank, and Californian arrived there because of the diff- differentials in speed. It took her ten days. And she arrived merely hours before Titanic, and she uh, and she waited there, drifting with the ice, with the engines fully uh, uh, primed and ready to go. The boilers were kept, were kept stoked, and she just remained there. Now, the significant about thing about that is that the, the, the apologists for the official story say, "Oh, yeah, well, she uh, she decided to stay there because." Um, you know, it wasn't prudent to sail through the ice field at high speed uh, at night. Uh, yeah, maybe. But in the, at the U.S. inquiry, um, three individual experienced Atlantic sea captains testified that it was not not usual practice to uh, stop in ice fields. In fact, just precisely the opposite. It was common practice to just go through at normal speed, full speed if necessary, because icebergs were completely visible from miles and miles away. And if the uh, if the lookouts, if the, the crew have been doing the job properly, it's not a problem to travel at full speed through an ice field. So that was, that kind of debunked that little myth. And significantly as well, one of the excuses that they give for Titanic hitting the iceberg was, oh, she was traveling too fast. No, I'm sorry, that's just utter nonsense. It was common practice, it was normal procedure, according to those three individual sea captains, to traverse through ice fields at full speed, because our icebergs are so visible. So, yeah, that's another... Mm. Uh, okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, on, as you said, right at the very beginning, on Sunday the 14th of April at 11.40pm local time, 
Titanic allegedly hit an iceberg and sunk three hours later with the loss of 1,500 lives. Was there an iceberg? Yes, there was an iceberg. There's no doubt about that. There was an iceberg because eyewitnesses, independent eyewitnesses, said there was an iceberg. But did the iceberg collide with the ship? Hmm, that's another question entirely. Mm. I can't say for certain that it did, and I can't say for certain that it didn't. But here are a few facts that perhaps uh, discredit that line of thinking. Right. Now, um, on, on Titanic, well, on all ships, the foremost two lifeboats uh, are always in readiness. So they're on the davits, hung out over the edge of the ship. Okay, all the others are stored away on deck, but the front two, in case of an emergency, the one on the port side and the one on the starboard side are always hung out over the edge of the ship, ready to be launched in an emergency. Right, in case of man overboard, that kind of thing. Gotcha, yeah. 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 So, now, if Titanic had grazed this iceberg, as the story, official story goes, then, you know, this thing probably will weigh in excess of a million tons. You know, then that starboard uh, lifeboat would at the very least have been dislodged and at the very worst totally destroyed because it was actually hanging out over the side of the ship. Now, there is absolutely no evidence of this and the, the lifeboat boat was used successfully in the rescue mission. So, you know, what that says to me is that, you know, that puts the iceberg story in doubt, just that one thing alone. And people say, oh, yeah, well, what about all the ice that was on deck? You know, everyone knows that there was ice all over the deck, you know, after the collision. Yeah, and then that's, yeah. I'll interject there, that's another thing we, of course, see in the movies. You know, like I said with, at the beginning, that, that programming people to think, oh, it was an iceberg. And then you see in the movie, you know, all this ice all over the decks and, you know, people exactly. slipping over it, looking like, um, you know, the Canadians curling. You know, there's ice blocks ro- you know, yeah. rolling around the place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, I don't dispute that there was ice on the deck, absolutely. But in order for it to have come from an iceberg, the the iceberg would have had to overhang the ship. That's right. It would have had to have been huge. Like, yeah. How tall was the side from the seat, from the waterline to the top of the the edge of the Titanic? Is there a measurement that you know of? Like, because it's it's quite massive. I did know. Yeah, it was very tall. I can't remember what the actual height above, you know, the, the, uh, above the, sea level was it i mean i think the main deck was you know somebody may correct me if i'm wrong on this but i think it was about 100 foot right so that means that if that iceberg was more than 100 foot tall and they say what is it um 10 of an iceberg shows out of the water or something yeah yeah. um imagine the size of this thing it would have been like yeah yeah, too big to even comprehend so yeah that's quite doubtful as well yeah exactly so, yeah, I mean, where, but where did the ice come from then in that case? Well, my uh, view is that uh, this was a very cold night. Okay, There was a lot, I know there was a lot of ice buildup on all the, um, the, the building, you know, the, the constructions on, on the deck. There was a huge radio antenna on Titanic which stretched the entire length of the ship in the form of a long wire between two masts. Okay, now it was a very cold night, as I say, the temperature was below freezing. Now I think there was an ice build up on there, and the and the and the sudden thrusting in, into reverse of the engines, which is actually what happened, caused that ice to dislodge quite naturally, yeah. and a lot of it fell on the deck. 
and the story, the stories of third-class passengers playing soccer with it, you know, skating around the deck with it, jokes about people in first class saying, go outside and get me a piece of ice for my drink, all this kind of stuff. You know, it could well have been true. I think the ice didn't come from the iceberg. I think the ice came from being this dislodged from the various bits of the ship. Yeah, that, that to me makes perfect sense. Yeah. Y- yeah. You can see that definitely happening, whether it's ropes yeah. or wire or even perhaps ropes that were, you know, holding the, um, what is it, the lookout, like the crow's nest in place or whatever. Yeah, like there would have been a whole bunch of wires yes. and ropes around. Yeah, even That's just right. netting ropes and things like uh, perhaps using for winches and stuff would have all probably been iced up as well, you know. Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, as you say, all the ice on the decks could have just been the result of shaking loose of large amounts from mm. all the miles of overhead rigging and whatnot, you know, yep. so yep. That, that's, not a, that's not an issue to me. Okay. But now let's get on to the actual damage to Titanic. Now, we're told um, that the steel plates, the one inch thick steel plates, or whatever that is in centimeters uh, for you guys, I don't, I don't know what that is, is it too. 2.4 centimetres? Yeah, roughly yeah. 2.4, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the steel plates had a 15 centimetre wide puncture, which is like six inches, is it? Something like that, mm-hmm. in, in, our, in our speak. Hey, folks, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please do head over to our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Real News Australia, to listen to the rest of it. Uh, there's yet uh, like another 45 minutes at least to go for this episode. Uh, a whole bunch more information that John shares with us. Uh, it's a fantastic episode. We do hope you can uh, head over and support what we're doing. Uh, for as little as 7 bucks a month, you'll get uh, at least another two bonus show podcasts exclusively for you guys only that are supporting what we're doing here. Um, at the moment, there's currently now 16, uh, 17, including this episode, there's 17 extra bonus episodes uh, of the General Knowledge Podcast that you guys can uh, listen to exclusively just for supporting what we're doing. So thanks again. I hope you can get on board, guys. Uh, even if you just do it for a month, a little bit helps. We really would uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks.